This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners, David Farhat and Nate Carden. Hi, everyone. This is Nate Carden, as always, here with David Farhat, Amon Kyler, and Stefan Victor. This is Guilty Conscience. Today, we are joined by Yoav Shans of McGill & Partners. He's the M&A tax lead there. And we're going to have an interesting conversation about tax insurance, specifically as it relates to transfer pricing issues. Yoav, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Very glad to have you. Why don't you start a little bit with perspective on tax insurance generally, what it can do and where you think it's appropriate and inappropriate, and we'll take it from there. Sure. So just to level set again, I know you guys already talked about tax insurance in one of your prior episodes. You had one of my uh, colleagues from the industry talk about the basics. So just to level set, tax insurance essentially is a risk mitigation tool here. The risk that we're talking about is tax And so in a situation where a tax authority, whether federal, state, local, or even foreign, challenges a tax position and is successful in challenging that position, then there's an incremental tax liability. An insurance policy will respond by making the taxpayer whole for that tax liability. It would also pay for any interest, penalties, costs in defending that position before it's ultimately settled or decided in favor of the tax authority. And then there's a gross up for any tax due on the receipt of insurance proceeds. There's a policy period typically is seven years. We could structure it for longer if necessary, but typically it covers the entire statute of limitations. It is a claims made policy, meaning that you have to make the claim within the policy term. So you have seven years to make the claim. The claim could be settled in year 20 and you're still covered. All of that is typically provided for a one-time premium. And so the punchline from my perspective is that tax insurance provides taxpayers with financial certainty for a position that inherently has risk. It is not a narrow tax tool. It is a broad business solution, the way I always say, and it enables multinational corporations, partnerships, high net worth individuals, family offices, even non-for-profit corporations, or I should say organizations, achieve their business objectives those objectives that they otherwise would not have been able to achieve because a tax risk would have been too high. And so we see tax insurance in a variety of settings. Obviously, M&A is the typical one where you have a buyer and a seller who might not necessarily agree on a particular historical position. And so whether it's a diligence issue or a structuring issue, think like spins, reorgs, treaty positions, or what have you, but we're also seeing it more in ordinary course tax planning. So think granted trust or worthless stock deductions, We see trust in estate planning, even immigration, positions that are currently under audit are also insurable. And then, of course, last but not least, transfer pricing, which is the topic we're here to talk about. Yeah, and if you can unpack that a little bit, because I think for a long time, folks saw transfer pricing and they said, how do I insure transfer pricing? I've got risk on several sides. Is it even worth it? There, We've talked about on the show before several times you know, MAP and APA and other ways to kind of handle transfer pricing risk. Can you talk specifically about kind of tax insurance and transfer pricing? What are you seeing? What are you advising? What's typical? Things of that nature. Sure. So let me start off by saying that in my mind, transfer pricing is really, really broad, right? There's a lot that falls under transfer pricing. It's not just what is the appropriate 
price for a particular transfer between related parties across two jurisdictions, right? Treaty positions, substance. There's a whole host of issues that all fall together with under transfer pricing. You could have one isolated closed transaction. You could have a whole web of transactions on a go-forward basis where you would otherwise get an APA. So there's a vast population of positions that all fall under transfer pricing. Um, Historically, in the tax insurance space, we have seen we have seen tax insurance applied more on that narrow side of the spectrum. And so whether it was a a single historical transaction, think about a transfer of IP among two related parties, but it's one single transaction. More recently, we've seen a position. So we actually saw two, three years worth of historical returns and the transfer pricing on those returns be insured. But that was in the M&A context. And so you had a buyer who didn't agree with the target's transfer pricing position for historical years. And so then that was insured. I think where I would like to focus the rest of this conversation is more on the on the more broad, right? On the more complex, on let's not do an APA. Let's let's get an insurance policy. I think there are a lot of benefits there. Got you. So on, w- want to go back on to, to something you were talking about. And I know we're going to focus on the broad I like how you said you look at transfer pricing and it's not just that pricing piece. There are a lot of elements in that. So it sounds like someone can either insure the entire transaction or pieces of it, right? So if I'm looking at my pricing or my my pricing plan and I've got valuation in there, or as you mentioned, an IP transfer, I can focus on specific pieces in that if I want to insure one part of that or I can insure the full. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's a la carte. Right, so you could insure a particular issue. You could insure multiple issues. You can insure both sides of that same issue. Right, if one jurisdiction says, you know what, you're, there's too much of a deduction in my jurisdiction, and then the other one could say, wait, there's there's not enough income. Right, so you could insure both sides of it, or you could insure one. Like I said, it's not a uh, every single tax insurance policy is bespoke. We start with a blank page, and we and we start from there. It is not like an auto policy. You pull it off a shelf, and 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 that's it. Maybe take the listeners through that process. So I'm sitting out there, I hear tax insurance for transfer pricing. That sounds like a good idea. I have this position or this collection of positions. What happens from there? What's the diligence process, et cetera? Sure. So the first thing that you want to do is call a broker such as Miguel and Partners. We would be the ones advocating for your Mm -hmm. position and we would take your position. We would first work with you and your advisors to understand the position and not just the support for it, but also what are the risks. We will then prepare what's called a submission. We will package that risk in the best possible light, advocating for the client principally, right? We're not going to just try to sneak anything behind any insurer, but we will go out there and we will advocate and we will take the risk to market, if you will, and put competitive pressure on a market with about 25, 26 participants or insurance providers to get the best possible terms, the broadest possible coverage for that particular position. There's no cost. There's no obligation to sign the policy. And like I said, there's no cost until we move into the underwriting phase. Are policies generally restricted to claims in one jurisdiction? No, no. So that's what I was saying before. You could structure the policy and and should structure the policy such that it covers both sides of the transaction. So if it's too little income in jurisdiction A or too much of a deduction jurisdiction B, if either of those positions is, is challenged, there's a tax cost in either of those jurisdictions. And so the the policy should cover both sides. Following up on that, you guys usually have like standard insurable risks. Can you kind of just discuss what kind of transactions that are like insurance companies usually 
cover and have that conversation. Sure. So on the one hand of the spectrum, we have tax equity. We're moving away from transfer pricing for a second, but we have tax equity. And now after the Inflation Reduction Act, we have the transferability. And so this is taxpayers effectively transferring tax credits that come from investments in renewable energy. Those tax credits either are being sold to third parties or there are partnership transactions that are entered into when one party is benefiting from those credits where the other party is really not. That whole industry makes up today 50%, if not more, of the tax insurance market. Now, that number, from my perspective, needs to be in the 20% range. And so what that means is that there's a whole host of other tax positions, whether they're U.S. or non-U.S. or state and local, whether it's tax-free kind of structuring transactions, whether they're treaty positions, withholding positions, trust and estate planning, what have you, all of that. There's just so much more of anything that isn't tax equity that needs to make up 80% of the market. So let me ask a quick question around tax insurance. One of the things that has been said about transfer pricing, transfer pricing is a combination of art and science, right? How does tax insurance deal with some of that nuance in transfer pricing? Because I think that's, that's where some folks would get kind of nervous to say, can tax insurance really deal with this, with the uncertainty that's just inherent in transfer pricing? Yep. Yep. So I would say that that subjectivity isn't only with respect to transfer pricing. I think there are other positions or other situations where you have the similar type of, you know, you have to make subjective judgment calls. And so that is exactly why tax insurance was created, or that is why we have a market for tax insurance. The way that we deal with it is through the underwriting process. So, right, we have an opinion or, or I shouldn't say opinion, we could have an analysis. And so whether it's a memo or transfer pricing report, a diligence report, what have you, it's a tax analysis, at least at a more likely than not level of comfort from, from an advisor. And then that analysis as part of underwriting gets checked, if you will. Someone kicks the tires on it. Another advisor who has expertise within that particular set of rules is kicking the tires on that on that analysis, making sure that it is complete, that it is accurate, that that no rock has been left unturned, that all different considerations were taken into account. And so once you have an agreement of of the minds with respect to a particular position, that's when the insurance policy is, is basically available. So it makes sense to think about the substantive analysis, right? Is this transfer pricing position sensible? Are you within the arm's length range? Whatever. To what extent does a particular taxpayer's audit experience, as well as the position of the government and behavior of the relevant government with respect to an issue, matter in the underwriting process? In other words, how much of this is the merits and how much of this is the likelihood that the issue is pressed hard? That's a really good question. Well, it's a combination of all those things. So I have seen insurance companies ask, right, who is the taxpayer? And then they look up into their audit history and, and whether they were in the news, whether they're a front page of, of the journal for one reason or another, they do look at the motivation for why they're even trying to get tax insurance. Is the transaction being motivated by a business purpose and is supported by economic analyses? Or are they just saying, listen, we'll do this if you could get the insurance. If the insurance isn't there, we're not doing this transaction, right? That's a completely different dynamic. And so they, they, do look at, they do look at all those factors that you mentioned. So moving forward a little bit, so how does the process work once the risk comes to fruition, right? 
putting together a claim is, is there's a hairline trigger for for a claim. So if you just get questioned by a tax authority with on 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 any position in your return, and that return mm-hmm. includes a position that was insured. So if they're asking you about your interest deductions, but you're really you know you're covering something else with a policy, even if they're asking you about something else within the return, that is automatically a claim. So right off the bat, you have to make a claim by the terms of the policy. You have to notify the insurer, and that effectively stops that seven-year clock. And so you're protected by the policy. Should that particular position that was insured ever get challenged, you're already protected. The second thing is, this is a collaborative process, right? So an insurer puts its own capital at risk to protect the taxpayer's position. They're not there to say, go ahead and and settle or go ahead and fold. They're there to, because they believe in the position. So they're there to say, let's together fight the tax authority and defend the position that we all believe is the right position. So obviously two minds are better than one. That's, that's typically the case. And so not only do you have the client and its advisors, you have the insurance company and their advisors working together collaboratively to get the best possible argument to defend the position. I would say this, two anecdotes. First is when I was uh, I was talking to one of my colleagues and he was telling me that, he was telling me a story that one of his clients is undergoing an audit. They picked four different positions that were, that the IRS is going after. And they asked if any of those positions is is backed by an insurance policy. It just so happens that one of them, in fact, was insured against. And so the IRS just left that one alone. And so I think that gets back to what we said earlier. You are not able to get an insurance policy if the position isn't good, if it's not a really supportable position. And so I think right off the bat, that that position was just let go. They, did, they stopped asking about it. it. So the punchline there is that tax insurance actually strengthens the position that that is being insured. Let me let me let me stop you there for a second, Rob, if you don't mind. That's an that's an interesting position because I would think the government would say, okay, taxpayers insured on this one, they're not going to fight me as much. They'll be more likely to give it up. What's the you know what's the ins- have you ever fought with an insurance company? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say it's the exact opposite. So I think I think there's two points there, right? The first is like I said, it actually strengthens the position. Someone, an an unrelated third party with the interests of the insurance company at heart came in, looked at the position and agreed that it is right. But secondly, like you said, Nate, to your point, fighting with an insurance company with deep pockets, like maybe the IRS just doesn't want to do that, knowing again that the position was taken on by the tax authority because all parties believe this is the right position. And so again, that was an anecdote. Um, I do think it speaks volumes to the power of tax insurance, but that's one the second one, are you saying that the most conservative positions are those most likely to be insured? I think those are the most insurable. I don't think that they're most the ones that are most likely. And so if you have a conservative position, it's easier to get that insured. Why would anyone not take a premium? So that's interesting because it kind of suggests that if I'm thinking about the range of risks that I have, the ones that are probably, if I want to dip my toe in the tax insurance water, the ones that are probably the focus, I would think would be ones where there's high severity, right? If I lose, it's a big risk, but I feel really good about it. It's strong. I don't, nothing certain, right? More likely than not is not should, should is not will, will is not etched in stone. But when I really look at it, I'm pretty sure I have the right answer. It's just that losing would be really severe. Is that the right way to prioritize things? 
Yes, I mean that is that is definitely one situation. I mean, of course, if, if again the risk could be low, but the magnitude is so uh, the magnitude of the loss is so uh, high to bear. Of course, that's one situation. But of course, you have situations where again you're at more likely than not, right? So you have forty nine or forty percent risk, if you will, and forty percent risk is way more than five, and still the magnitude is really high. The magnitude of the loss is really high, so it's not just those um, where the risk is low, but the magnitude is high. You could you could be high on both fronts, and still, I think that's really where you do need insurance more than more than um, let's call it you know a spin issue or an S corp issue. So to piggyback on that, and something we see in transfer pricing, especially in this current environment, a transaction that may be more novel, right? So we're comfortable with our position, but it's something the particular government or governments haven't seen before, or something that you're comfortable with, but a particular government may be um, a bit more aggressive. So that kind of thing, I think, fits into the into Nate's description as well, correct? No, I think that's exactly right. So again, in my experience, when I was an advisor, again, transfer pricing was one of those situations that was always a soft target for any tax authority. So when we were doing diligence, like we beat up transfer pricing pretty well. So we know that governments are going after transfer pricing, we know that there are, you know, there's coordinated audits. They're they're sharing information with one another. They're they're really going they're really going after transfer pricing. And this is before we start talking about pillar one, pillar two, and and everything else that's going on. So uh, just getting back to what you were saying earlier, it, transfer pricing inherently is more an art than a science. Therefore, it is more soft. So so long as you have an analysis supporting the position. And you have another party that could agree with that analysis. Tax insurance has a big role to play within the transfer pricing world. What's the accounting, if you know, for when you have an insured position? Maybe it doesn't matter because typically insured positions are not positions on which companies will have reserves. But I'm just wondering if if I have this position out there, I maybe I already have a reserve on it, but I would still be at more likely than not. Uh, you know, I'm, yep. I'm, I, I, I think that there's some need potentially to settle the thing. Then I come to you, you, you place a policy for me. Now I have insurance. What happens from a financial statement standpoint? Yep. So there's nothing to say that you could get the reserve off your books. I think you still have to have the reserve. I think there's some limited situations. And then the business combination space, maybe, and, and I defer to your accountants. In the business combination space, you might be able to not record the reserve. But I advise my clients. The liability is to a tax authority. The receivable, which is a contingent receivable, because uh, again, there are conditions in the policy that you have to meet. That is from a different party. That's from the insurer. And so you would record your, you would record your reserve, your contingent liability. You may record a contingent asset on a net basis. They mitigate each other, but there's nothing to say that you get to take the re- the reserve off your books. I think importantly, and this is interesting. When the insurance policy pays out in that year, you actually got an EBITDA benefit because it's an above-the-line kind of other income. Yeah, that's what I was where, thinking too. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. the balance sheet geography might work in your favor. Right. Interesting. Pivoting a little bit to something you said earlier around kind of uh, treaties, APAs, and, and, and tax insurance. Kind of looking at tax insurance for a substitu- as a substitute for APA kind of hurts my heart to even say that as much as I love the confident authority process. I let, knew you were going to be hurt by that. Yes, let, him, yeah. let him say his piece. I know. Piece. I, 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 I want to let him say his piece on it to see, you know, what, if, if it makes sense. Because I believe everything, even if it, you know, even if it's domestic, should have an APA slapped on it. <laughs> 
So let's let's think about it. Uh, let's go back to the point that I was making before. Tax insurance should be thought of not not as a as a narrow tax thing from a tax perspective. Yep. It's really broad. It's a business issue, right? So we want to have certainty. One way to get certainty is through an APA, right? We we we're going to go in and negotiate with a tax authority or multiple tax authorities and say this is what we want to do for the next however many years. Give us certainty. Now. The downside there is that you're going to do a lot of work. You're going to give all that work and volunteer all that information to a tax authority to start negotiating. So you have no control where you're going to end up. And even when you get that APA, I don't think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that you're fully shielded from controversy later when two, three, four years later, right? So the tax authority could still come after you. And so what I'm suggesting is do the same amount of work, right? Engage David Farhat to do your, your transfer pricing work. I like that part. I like that part. So we're still doing the same amount of work, but then instead of giving it to a tax authority, we're giving it to one of your peers who would corroborate all of the work that you did. And then essentially, if a tax authority comes, great, you're protected. And if they don't come, also great, because they, they're not knocking on your door. But the point is, if they do come knocking on your door, you're protected by an insurance policy that will make you whole for interest, for penalties, for contest costs, and for gross up. And so talking about, you know, I was saying before I had two anecdotes. The second one was I was talking with um, uh, with one of the insurance companies about a claim that they recently had. I'm sure you're going to ask this, who controls an audit, right? The taxpayer controls the audit. There's uh, an insurance company does not want to step into the shoes of a, of a, of a taxpayer they're not in the business of managing tax audits. They want the taxpayer to leverage its, its existing relationship with tax agents and let the taxpayer run the day-to-day. But, of course, it's their capital on the line, so they want to be appraised of the process, right? When are you having calls? What information is being exchanged back, back and forth? They want to have input with respect to that. And so a lot of times, and, and this, this particular situation that I was referring to, the taxpayer prepared a response to the tax authority. They shared that response with the insurer because they had to. The insurer looked at the looked at the the response that was prepared. And now I don't advocate that anyone do this, but it seemed like it was very um quick and dirty, if you will, right? They didn't put a lot of thought and effort. And so that the insurance company with their advisors basically started from scratch, put together a completely different response that was much more robust, much more organized, framed the response better, that went over to the tax authority and the tax authority just went away. And so the process, having not just the taxpayer and its advisors, but also the insurance company and the insurance company's advisors together against the tax authority actually works. That's very interesting. And and I appreciate you putting it that way. And say, for instance, I have a transaction and I'm in jurisdiction A, but I do the transaction with jurisdiction B through F. F may be material, but not as material as B. Or I may not have a treaty in, in jurisdiction F. Right? There could be several different reasons I don't want to do an APA with jurisdiction C forward, but I want to do an APA with jurisdiction B. Can I use tax insurance in a way where I negotiate an APA with jurisdiction B, and then I get this protected further? And would I have to wait till the, till the APA is over, or can I do it ahead of time? Something like that. That's a really good question. 
To be honest with you, I think it ought to be possible. I think it hasn't been done before. If you have a client, please, let's, uh, let's work on it together. But in all seriousness, it hasn't been done before, but that's not to say that it can't be done. We're all starting with a blank sheet of paper. We could structure this, this risk transfer any way we want, right? We're, we're, we're starting with a blank sheet of paper. I don't see why that wouldn't be the case. Of course, the, um, there ought to be some kind of protections built in for the insurer. And so earlier on the call, we talked about protecting both sides of a, uh, of a particular transaction. Obviously, jurisdiction F and jurisdiction A, that transaction, you might not get the A side coverage if A is in an APA with B and C, right? And so I think I think there's some things to talk through, but I there are a lot of very, very, very smart people here on the insurance front, very, really smart tax practitioners. They're very well advised. I, I think that, that, that we're very, very flexible and we ought to be able to come up with a solution for uh, a situation such as what you just described. Yeah, good, because you know I always get scared when people say don't do APAs. It makes me nervous. <laughs> I just think, again, I just think from a practical perspective, it's going to take you two years or three years, and it does not give you the certainty that, in my mind, an insurance policy does provide you with. Earlier in the call, you said that you usually see tax insurance for like standard M&A deals, for example, like rep warranty, that kind of stuff. So focusing specifically on transfer pricing, how many of these do you see, say, like in a year? How common is it? It is not, but we all are waiting for the floodgates to open on transfer pricing. And so it's not common. But it hasn't been. Have you seen any? We have seen a couple. So, like I said, we've seen we've seen that one that was historical when in the M and A context. We've seen the one that was an IP transfer. I think you know three eleven B in valuation. It was a distribution of IP from one jurisdiction to the other. Uh, so we've seen a couple of those, but it just comes up so often. And like I said, there's there's practices now being built for this particular solution, helping not just the insurance company but also the um, taxpayers. And so it's it's not just me saying this, it's a whole lot of other people saying that this is going to be the future of tax insurance and of transfer pricing. Are future positions insurable? David's talking about an APA, right? That can potentially involve things that are going on today, but also will take into account, one way or the other, uh, with conditions, changes in business operations. Can an insurance policy deal with that? Yes, I think it can, absolutely. So there would be, we've talked about it, and theoretically, the way that it would work is, right, we're talking about the future, so transactions that have not closed yet. And who knows what's going to happen, how market conditions are going to change in the future, right? Maybe there's a natural uh, natural disaster, maybe there's a war, maybe there's a new technology or a new, um, you know, some health issue, right? I mean, we all know the, the, the one that comes to mind. Uh, that changes the market dynamics. Right, and so the way that it will work is we all agree on what the uh, market dynamics are today, and so we have we know where the dumpy functions are, we know who owns what, we know where the risks are, and so on and so forth as of today, and so we're able to ensure this fact pattern. Should the fact pattern change, we have to adopt and and refine our transfer pricing analysis, as you have to do anyway, right? You every year you have to revisit your transfer pricing and make sure that it's accurate. So. Uh, the way that it will work is you would refine your transfer pricing, or if you don't need to, if nothing has changed, you you don't need to refine your transfer pricing. But at the end of the year, uh, you basically confirm with the insurance company and get their buy-in that 
either the changes that you made are appropriate or that no changes needed to be made. So, so long as you have that insurance company's buy-in, if a tax authority comes in to challenge the transfer pricing for a particular year, you'd, you'd still be covered. Effectively, it acts like a pre-audit. You have That's, a knowledgeable person helping you to steer the ship as you're going along. It's a pre-audit, though it is much more streamlined, much more efficient, right? It's not, it, it's not going to take three or four years. And, 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 and also, like I said, you're not volunteering everything to a tax authority. Right. So there's some some things that are not necessarily relevant, but everything needs, you know, the government can ask you about whatever they want. Related question and kind of harkening back to something you said, kind of bringing in BAPS 2.0 with Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. How does tax insurance deal with rule changes? So excellent question. Rule changes, so long as they are prospective, they are not going to be covered. Uh, if they are retroactive, so it's a future change in law that is retroactive and therefore it, it impacts a position that you had already taken and that was insured, then you're covered. And so t- so 15-year amortization for uh, intangibles, right? In year six, if the law changes and they say from now on, amortization deductions are no longer uh, uh, deductible, or should I say amortization of IP is no longer deductible, so year six through fifteen, you're not getting covered for those uh, uh, for those lost deductions. If in year six they say from year five and forward the deductions are no longer valid, you still get coverage for that year five because it's retroactive to that prior year. So how do you see kind of the BEPS 2.0 impacting the desire for transfer pricing insurance? Right, because I think. Transfer price uncertainty is going to be so much more important with Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 because they kind of sit on top of, of transfer pricing. So while it may be a rare bird now, um, I think it makes a whole heck of a lot more sense going forward. Yeah, I think um, not just because of BEPS 2.0, right? Not just transfer pricing. We have seen tax insurance and the appetite for tax insurance, the the prevalence of tax insurance. Forget the awareness, like actual transfer uh actual tax insurance policies become much more frequent, much more varied. The Inflation Reduction Act came into play, uh, supercharged tax credits and provided for transferability. And so we are seeing a big uptick in tax insurance policies in, in the renewable energy space. But everyone is kind of anticipating once M&A volumes go back up. Um, and again, as, as people fully digest and understand tax insurance, understand that it's not taboo, understand how it works, and, and that all that skepticism goes away. Renewable energy is going to make up, call it 20% of the market. Everything else is going to be the remainder, right? That 80%. And a big chunk of that is going to be transfer pricing. And then you add on top of that, like you said, pillar two, it's going to be even more so. And do you think that's growth is going to be on the day-to-day transfer pricing side, or is it going to be in connection with with corporate transactions? Right, I'm I'm Big Co. We're buying a Target. They were small. Maybe their compliance was so-so. I think ultimately their position's okay, but I'm worried about it. So I I insure it in connection with buying it, or I I tell them to go buy one prior to acquisition. Where's the juice? That's a really good question. Most of my practice has been in much larger kind of prospective structuring issue rather than a historical diligence issue that in the context of the deal is kind of, you know, it's a $100 million deal, you have a $10 million issue, or you have a billion dollar deal, you have a $100 million issue. We do and have done more of those larger issues. 
And so my my perspective, I think, is going to be skewed here. But I think both. This has been an, an, an amazing conversation. We've gone through quite a bit kind of talking about transfer pricing and tax insurance. We've had a little bit of fun. Um, any last thoughts kind of wrapping this up? Yes. I know we talked a lot about transfer pricing. My last point here is think about tax insurance, whether it's transfer pricing or anything else. Think about how to use it prospectively. I think that's how you squeeze the most juice out of tax insurance. And so pick up the phone. Give, give us a call. Uh, talk to your broker. Figure out if something's insurable or not. There's, it, it, there's no reason why a position or a transaction or some planning opportunity should go by the wayside because there's tax risk. And so we've done, for example, we've been part of several situations where um, whether it was a planning opportunity or an M&A transaction um, that had a significant amount of tax risk. And so when you're considering commercial and legal and, 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 and all the other considerations, right? Financial, what have you, when you're considering tax, it's typically just the risk, right? What's the downside? Um, if you take that downside off the table with an insurance policy, I think you'll be able to make a, a more informed, better business decision. And so thinking about, um, a, a transaction, an upcoming transaction, an upcoming tax opportunity. You don't need the opinion or the step plan or the memo or what have you. You don't need that other party. You really don't need anything. You are able to go to the insurance market, present them with the risk, get indicative terms. And with those indicative terms, you're able to make a better business decision about that future uh, objective that you want to achieve. And so use tax insurance as uh, you know proactively. That would be my, my last comment here. Don't drive looking in the rearview mirror. Good advice. There, there you go. There, there you go. I'm gonna I'm gonna write that one down. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Joab. This, this this has been a pleasure. We've enjoyed having you, and this, as usual, has been a lot of fun. And all, this is Guilty Conscience. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com. 